Whether you are in a relationship right now, a romantic relationship, or you want to be in a romantic relationship right now, you want to listen to this episode. This has incredible, big, huge value bombs. I bring on someone who is incredibly dear to my own heart to talk about a really difficult and beautiful topic, and that is love, romantic love, and how we actually have that kind of romantic love, and how do we can ground ourselves in something that can weather about anything in life. So stay tuned and stay to the very end. We promise to give you something for free that if you are struggling right now in any way with a romantic relationship and want to take it to the next level, we're going to give you a free resource to help you step-by-step to slowly move yourself into a more deeper and loving relationship. Okay, let's get going. Are you living the most real life possible? I ask myself this question all the time. Most of the time, the answer is, I just don't know. But sometimes the answer is, definitely not. This is why I have this podcast. I'm Matt Botker, and welcome to the show. Two small things. If you get a chance, please leave a review, like on Apple Podcasts. And also check out my website, livingthereal.com, where I offer lots of resources on how to live the most real life possible. Now, on with the show. Okay, so I bring on my sister once again, Angie Long, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist who has incredible amount of years of experience to talk about a statement that I saw a couple months ago, a statement about why marriages, why romantic relationships ultimately fail. And it's not because of a lack of love. So I bring on Angie Long to talk about this to see to what extent she sees this in her own life and how we can better our most romantic relationships. We can get the most value out of them and thrive even in the context of adversity. So here's my conversation with Angie Long. Okay. So I want to start with this, sis. So I I got this like lecture about I think it was in February and I was watching to see you. Do you know David Brooks, by the way? Have I you like do. read him or? I've read okay. his so. articles. He's a journalist and an author. And I've read one of his books. He's a commentator yeah. on the New York yes. Times, right? I was acquainted with him with this book called The Second Mountain. Is that the one you read? I think I read his a book before that. And I've heard you talk about okay. The Second Mountain before, but I don't okay. believe I've right. read You've got to read it, number one. Okay. So number one, you have to read that. Number one, whoever's listening has to read this book. It's a really, really good book, but that didn't come from the book. So in, I think February, March, the University of Colorado Boulder had David Brooks come speak. Well, in a pandemic, come speak means Zoom. So, so they zoomed in and had a talk. And so I was listening to it. It was really, really good. I might have to send it to you and I'll put it in the show notes as well. If anybody else wants to watch it, it is a really, I think a good, he gave a good talk, but he said this one line that kind of provoked me. And I, and he said that, and I think it was out of the blue, it had been some context, but he said, most marriages fail because of a lack of friendship over that of a lack of love. And now I know I sent this to you a little bit earlier and I found out, by the way, do you know that he's not the first one, the first person to, to say this? I'm guessing you're probably thinking, no doubt. But did you know that? I didn't know Nietzsche. And I pulled up, yeah, even a quote from Aristotle that I, right, this is like ancient oh. philosophers, I believe, wow, we're talking did, about this. You, you just it's not a me. new concept. Aristotle. Shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. That was way before, before TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. So Aristotle apparently said this is an important thing. So I want to start with this of like that quote. What do you, First of all, what comes to mind when you hear that quote? Do you think that's an accurate? I mean, you've been in 
this is another thing. It's probably good having siblings on. If you ever have a podcast, having siblings on a podcast is probably a good idea because you actually get to know them a little bit, a little more. Because I realize, oh, you're a therapist. I've known that for a while, so that's not surprising. But the second thing, I don't know what kind of a therapist you are. So I was thinking, okay, so when you talk about marriages failed because of a lack of friendship and love, I want to know, what do you think about that? What have you experienced that in your own therapy? And by the way, do you do marriage counseling? I have no clue. I just... I. Or you just do like random therapy? Random therapy, a new approach. (laughs) No, I have worked with couples, but I don't do a ton of marriage counseling by choice. However, I'm a firm believer that individual counseling, when people come for individual counseling, relationship issues are almost always present. And certainly change can happen as a result of individual counseling. So I come through a lens of, or my experience is mostly individual, but I have worked with some couples. And where I see this beyond working with the couples is with people in their 20s who are trying to decide, is this person I've been with for two or three years? I don't know. How do I know when they're, if they're the one, what is it supposed to be like? I don't know about marriage. And so this in individual counseling, this comes up with a lot of younger people that I work with in their 20s who are really contemplating this long-term relationship. Do I want to, are we taking the next step? And I wholeheartedly agree that friendship is something that people, often they don't think about. There's some other idea about how you're supposed to know when you get married, but like this idea of friendship, it often comes up. And I wholeheartedly agree that it's huge of huge importance in marriages. So then, okay. So that's it, which I think, I, I think I really, really agree that friendship is a pretty indispensable part of love and relationships. We can go down a lot of paths, you and I, about where we establish friendship. But I just want to start with the idea of what is friendship? Because in my mind, it it can be different. There's people I hang with that like a set of like dudes that I hang with guys and their idea of friendship is just hanging out, shooting the breeze. And there really is no emotion involved with it. At least there's no overt emotion. And because when I think of what, what we're going down a path with, if with, with David Brooks saying that friendship is indispensable for a good marriage, the first thing I think about is emotional like connection. And maybe that's not right, but like emotional connection, because I think men, tendency to have a tendency not to be so emotionally maybe involved in a relationship. So maybe that's the cultivation needs to be happening. But when you think about friendship, like, what do we mean by cultivating a good friendship in the context of love? Well, I think affection, right? So even though what you're talking about is maybe you get together with these friends and maybe you're not like talking about a bunch of emotional stuff, but my guess would be, is that there's some affection you have for one another, Right. Like that you show up Mm. and you maybe enjoy, maybe even some, oftentimes I think there's this like holding someone else and maybe like the high esteem. I think those can be factors of friendship and maybe emotional trust. Sometimes there are, I've, sometimes there's outward circles of friendship, right? (laughs) And sometimes the, the smallest circle holds all of these things. And then there are varying levels of this. But I just think of a general like wanting the best for one another and being on each other's side. It doesn't have to be. I think some people think, oh, we don't like to do the same things. I actually don't think that particularly matters. I think it's about how you respond to one another that's most important. And there's a, John Gottman is a famous sort of researcher in marriage. He's a, I think he was a therapist, but he does a lot of research. He has a marriage lab up in the Seattle area. And he's essentially done research that says he can predict with 90% accuracy who will divorce and who will remain together in marriages after he has them 
come into this marriage lab and he has them talk about some area of conflict and then observes how they respond to that. And so he has come up with, and I think this ties in well, because he has said there's four like sort of deadly horsemen for marriages, and that's contempt, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Now, a brief, quick stonewalling is what it sounds like. I'm literally like putting up a wall between you and I. And it comes out of maybe because I'm overwhelmed and I'm just withdrawing, shutting down, not engaging with you. So that's what stonewalling is. Uh But I think this is a nice example because he's found out these things are huge detriments to marriages lasting, often lead to divorce when they're most prevalent. And so I think you can flip that and go, it connects with what friendships is. Like you often don't have contempt and criticism for your friends, or you're probably just like, they're going off the friends list. It's just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a lot easier that way. You can, that's why it's hard. Like, well, with a friend, maybe that's not the right thing to do, but this is where I think not to go down like a really deep rabbit hole of trying to make terms be everything. But one of the books I read a long time about relationships talked about the idea about sympathy. I don't know if you, I, I put this one in the notes, but, but the idea that there's sympathetic relationships, which is a really, what he calls is like a raw material of love, but it's just a raw material. And sympathy is just based like mutual experience. So, Hey, sis, let's go to uh, a Marvel movie. I'm like, okay, let's go. So we go and we both have this really powerful, fun experience. We both experience passively a really good movie. We bond over the experience. And so then we end up thinking that we're bonding and we are, but it's very immature. It has nothing, there's nothing active about it. It's just us. We both happen to be in the same environment, same time, both enjoy the same thing. And that was the bond. It's still a bond, but it's not active. It's not like one pursuing another person. And I feel like sometimes we get in this road of, oh, we experience somebody and we both like each other. Like all of a sudden we're like, you feel icky. And then you just dismiss them. You move on. You go, you find a new friend. So it seems like it's an easier reality to deal with friendship in that way. But then my fear is when we treat friendship like that way, then we get into relationships that are love but then we feel like we have to stay in it. But then we don't bring our A game. We sit in this, uh, you're icky. Yeah. But then, and then we just, we just stay in that mode. And I'm guessing that is probably one of the elements that prevents us from moving from a deeper relationship and a friendship, which, so I'm wondering, like, how do you like build a friendship within those situations where you're feeling really rubbed and, and, and your go-to is maybe the stone wall or I don't know what the other ones you said. The other ones where that's your defense mechanism. That's your safety mode, right? Your, or your self-preservation Getting mode. defensive. But now you're in this relationship. Yeah. And now you want to like try to move into a place where ah, I don't, I can't cut this person off or objectively, I don't want to cut this person yeah. off. But, but my constant thing is going to these particular traits that aren't helping. How on earth do I get myself out of that if I'm in one of those relationships and begin to lean into possibly a friendship, which you said has like- Like affection. Affection for someone, right? It starts with, you talk about this a lot, I think, like discovery, right? Like I use the word introspection. Like it starts with awareness, being able Mm -hmm. to go, Yeah. okay, how am I relating to this other person? And just, you can take a few days or a week and kind of figure out how, oh, well, there was criticism in that remark I just said. That might have been contempt. Oh, I got a little defensive there or I withdrew. Like you can self-assess pretty easily. Now, what? And just a little sidebar is that 
oftentimes what couples, when they show up in therapy is they want to tell me what the other person's doing wrong. And I encourage them not to go, don't go keep track of what your spouse is doing wrong. That is a dangerous road. That's about blank. That's (laughs) contempt criticism right there. And so it's about becoming introspective and going, okay, if I, why don't I look at this? How am I responding, especially around areas of conflict? And then once you recognize that one, that in itself is powerful just to go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize all the ways this is showing up in my relationship and what I'm saying. And then you have to intentionally cultivate something new. Can I, when I notice that arise, I can choose not to act on it. I don't have to say the critical thing. I can pause, be with that and choose to say something supportive. And what we know is about change in general, like the best way to change is through little frequent practices. It's little and often. It's Okay, so it's not like I need some big insight or some big intervention. It really is about going, I'm going to bring my awareness and my attention to this. I'm going to look at myself rather than through a lens of what the other's doing wrong and then go, what do I want to invite in? And inviting in affection for the other is something you can do. And we're designed to believe what we tell ourselves. So when you start talking differently and start thinking differently, you start feeling differently, you start acting differently, all these things are connected and influence one another. So even if you don't feel it, you can start the action and you'll get to feeling at some point. This doesn't like happen overnight, like a switch. A couple of things right racing through my mind of this idea of, well, okay, whenever I get triggered, I'm going to default to my most basic instinct which is probably not good for some people it might be a virtuous instinct for other people's it might be, I go back to my defensiveness. Mm-hmm. So usually when I tell people about trying to practice a better sense of relationship or leaning into someone that practicing in the moment of a trigger is absolute futile and never works to your advantage. So you got to practice continuously outside of a safe zone of practicing, cultivating this sense of in the same way that I probably got here or we got here in a certain way in a relationship, not because of particularly the unique relationship, maybe that's part of it, but also a lot of things that predate it, that go from your whole history and your past. And so this question of like, when it comes to facilitating relationships and deepened relationships, you said uh, Gottman can predict 90% accuracy, whether a marriage is going to fail. Now, where does that stuff come from? How much of it, how much of it is nature and how much of it is nurture? Because I think we, I feel like we live in this gap, at least me and you, I don't know about like generation Z's and that kind of stuff where there we lived in a transition period of our the ideas of marriage began to shift and change and the values you mentioned this one time how like the emphasis on friendship and marriage sounds weird but isn't it a relatively new concept i think it would be i think it could be because i think there are generational things and i'm thinking about parents say our parents our grandparents and maybe what they learned about marriage and just the realities that that they experience. I think for some, sometimes I think maybe they maybe looked more towards, like I'm thinking of the woman in the marriage looked more towards female friends for friendship sort of things. And also another factor that I think contributes is our parents and our grandparents, for example, got married much younger ages than we did. And so they were, I wonder how that just impacts your view of a marriage. I can't even imagine you just finishing being a teenager and then you're you're married yeah. and how you navigate what are my beliefs and ideas about who my spouse is and how that's supposed to look versus friendship. And so I think that there can be, and probably is some interesting information out there about sort of 
genera- generational differences about it. And if I think if you go back, I'm just thinking you have the 50s family. What was, you almost said stereotype, but it was true. And so I'm just wondering if if people who are in those kinds of marriages where maybe you're not happy and maybe you don't have a lot of choice to make changes, then, you know, I don't know how friendship gets brought even into that. I think back to when women couldn't really work outside the home or couldn't have their own credit card. This was like around when I was born. Like this was, so this isn't (laughs) that long ago. And how would that impact your view? Because there was a power differential. And so how does that impact friendship in marriages that, that, that existed or, and let's still exist today in many, I'm sure. Yeah. In different ways. It's almost, you know, it's blowing my mind. Now I I might be taking this too far, of course, but I have a tendency to exaggerate anything because for the sake of simplicity, but it kind of reminds me of, okay, we live in this era now by which, oh my gosh, women have a voice. And it was so much simpler. I put some quotation when one person didn't have a voice mm-hmm. and the other one did, you know, how much easier to keep stability in a marriage. And now when you have two people who are actually human beings equals come into relationship, no wonder divorce is maybe like increasing because now it's harder. Now you actually have to deal with a relationship versus a power struggle. And that's the beauty of it, right? We Now we have to learn. So I feel like we're late to the game. There, we're actually, the cutting edge is believing that we're both equals mm-hmm. in the relationship. And so how do we come together and not feel like, okay, when we're in a household, we can disagree, but as soon as we disagree, the man's decision overtakes. I've heard these traditional models, right? Well, that that's an easy way of doing things. But now when you're coming together, like, no, we work together and we find a solution. It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to be able to navigate this train and having, we need all the more, we need resources because this is the opportunity to cultivate like a real friendship and, and lean into each other's worlds versus one person's world becomes the other person's world, which I feel like that has a tendency to be the case. Well, if that was your model and then you're in something different, you get, you bump up against beliefs that you never really looked at very closely, right? Oh, I realized I assumed this, I thought this, or I have this belief about this. And so that, that shows up. And again, if you're willing to give it time and attention and explore it, that's the opening, the gap, I'll use your, the gap, that's the opening for change, for introducing Uh something new. And it just really is. It kind of like I tell people over and over that it wasn't until marriage that I realized my inability to have really intimate friendships. I think I realized, oh, because of marriage, because it keeps you in a position where like you're forced to be able to be with someone and you have to be vulnerable or there has consequences. If you just keep, if if you're a lock vault, there's just consequences that are unhealthy. It's easy like I said, to be able to be in a friendship and like, ah, it's just not working. And then you leave, but this is a friendship you're trying to cultivate. You just don't leave. And so then it really opens up your, the lack of friendship, the, the lack of vulnerability and prevents new opportunities to really grow in friendship. So into you know, that you were talking about before we got on about models. So I don't know how much you got into Gottman, that kind of stuff. I'm curious. Cause he talks about if he can, if he can 90% accuracy of determining which relationships fail and which ones succeed? Like what are some of the common denominators that that cultivate a really healthy romantic relationship? But so what he's saying, what he's looking for. So he would have them talk about an area of conflict and a quick aside, these are like what he called, I think 
I'm not sure the word to use it's perpetual conflicts. A lot of conflicts in marriages aren't solvable. They don't necessarily, they go on and on and on. And so it's not that you have to solve the conflict. I think that's sometimes, I, I just want us to put that out there, that these often are recurrent arguments or conflicts. So it's about how they talk about them. And he said in stable marriages that there was like a positive, there was some sort of positive affect. So there might be humor, there might be understanding showing up, there's empathy, there's just a positive way of interacting that doesn't involve contempt, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And he went so far as to say in stable marriages that that ratio, he, he does the ratios, is five to one. So for every criticism, there's five positive interactions. And by positive, I'm meaning just this. Okay, I'm trying to understand. Doesn't mean I'm not mad and I'm all happy, but maybe it just means I inject some humor into it, or I try to understand what the other person's saying, or I reflect that back to them. But So it's a very different feel. And then he said in unstable marriages, that ratio is 0.8 to 1. You're talking about almost equal negative to to positive sort of interactions. Again, talking about almost equal criticism as opposed to a positive reference towards your spouse in some way. That's a big difference. Framing this for our listeners, they're like, okay, there's like, in one sense, there's those who aren't married in a, not a romantic relationship and maybe looking to be in a relationship and they want to have a successful relationship, which we're saying that, okay, according to Brooks, according to Nietzsche, according to Aristotle, according to that friendship is, is like the foundation stone to really cultivate a good romantic relationship. I was thinking about this idea. Now I'm going to throw this past. I, I love imagery of this idea of like, okay, well, there's raw materials for all relationships. There needs to be desire. Like you need, clearly any relationships needs, you need a desire to want to be with a person. That's your own kind of desire, your own self-interest. The other side, another raw material is goodwill, like actually wanting their well-being. And then there also is sympathy by having a mutual experience and it is powerful. So all these kind of things are the raw material. And I feel like romantic love is like <laughs> the reason why we've been making homemade bread lately. So it's like that yeast, like the, they put in the raw material, like particular raw material that make it rise and make it really bigger than the sum of its parts, right? Because romance is, is a pretty profound and big reality that feels almost, it feels almost mystical at times. There's such a connection, so deep, spiritual, that really transcends any kind of friendship that you have. And my only best equivalent is that it's not like romantic relationship, because this is where I want to make this caveat, because I feel like working on a college level, I feel like sometimes they treat romantic relationships as something other. It's my friendship. And then there's something other as if it has its own criteria by which to measure something because sometimes they skip the friendship and go right into the romance. They at least need to be simultaneous that the friendship is so powerful and needed and that romance is at the yeast or whatever that leavens and makes it big and profound. The question is how then in one context of people who are looking for romance in their life, how can they build good habits to be able to have a good, solid friendship, or at least try to pursue that in the midst of the romance. Because I know this, like when I first started dating Jan, my world revolved around Jan. I left all my friends, all my circumstances, and every waking moment was about hanging out with her, which of course is normal. It's infatuation. It's the first step. But some of that can be a little bit of a slippery slope because then you don't get that chance to really cultivate maybe a deep friendship right on because you're not introducing them to your world 
that was before Jan or before, which is part of your life and vice versa. So you don't get that chance to co-mingle with all these other life circumstances and be like, oh, that's cool. That's neat. So in the context of single life, what are some good habits somebody can take to really strengthen their capacity to build a good friendship in the context of romantic love? I don't think the friendship has to come first. It can be that those romantic love, strong feelings are the initial attraction. And that makes sense. I'm just thinking about oftentimes, like one hallmark of adolescence is intensity of feelings. And so, and and there's that same intensity when you're meeting someone and falling in love. And so these, one, if we're younger, when that happens, or that's just how it works. And so it doesn't mean I should be friends first. And that's certainly a very solid foundation to have. So I wouldn't discourage it, but I don't think it's necessarily a negative or some sort of predictor if it's really romantic love initially, because that's often how it looks and what happens. I think what comes is, I think a way to think about this, one thing I, I think is how you navigate areas of conflict is this is where this could show up right because that's where a lot of these I'll just say the uglier stuff is going to present is going to present itself sure. and so being able to almost consider how to do that intentionally and how to to have in the back of your mind that it's there's it's not either or it's not romantic love or friendship but maybe both and these are not mutually exclusive and shouldn't be is what we're saying that bringing in and thinking about having a friendship and in in addition to romantic love, it's like a foundational piece. Since things change, we don't maintain that intensity of feelings in those early stages of dating and meeting for 50 years. I would personally argue that what develops is a lot more powerful in a lot of ways, like a, a deeper, more intimate love where someone sees all of you, even the not so pretty stuff and loves you anyway, and loves you with all that. Yeah. I think that's more powerful. But, and so this recognizing, okay, there's something here I can tend to and pay attention to, which is friendship. And when I think of that, it's this positive sort of in your corner, affection, trust of one another, and, and to bring that in around differences. Or for example, what you said earlier is like when you're triggered, that's hard. But if you start to know what triggers you and those early signs of being triggered, there's an opportunity there to do something differently, whether it's simply, okay, I'm having a strong reaction right now and I want to be supportive and I'm just going to go take a 10 minute break right now. You know, that's an option. Calls to mind this again, working on college scenes is this idea where there's a, there's a false, I think, reality that somehow romantic love will eclipse all the shortcomings that I'm dealing with life. And, and I think that's one of the things I'm like, where I've, I've, felt, I've fallen prey to this in my own life, where you just, you have such a romantic version of romance, which is great, but it's a powerful reality, but it doesn't overcome your weaknesses just by default, yeah. that you still bring your weaknesses with you. But in fact, believe it or not, it's going to magnify them. It's down the road, it's going to magnify them in one way or another. So working on a deep sense of self-awareness, I think what you were saying is, is so incredibly important that if your tendency is to deeply avoid conflict, to deeply, to not really share your feelings, if that's your default, your gravitational force, it's really good to be aware from that because it's not going to go away. 
when you enter into a romantic relationship. Now, it'll be ignored because the romance is so intense and so wonderful, you'll forget about it. You'll be all the more agreeable. Mm -hmm. Oh, whatever you want to do. But then eventually your own humanity is going to take hold and you're going to be like, oh, I want to be seen too. Not that it's anybody's fault. It might be just the environment of the romance. But then great, guess what? That baggage that we all have is still there. And it's going to be magnified and it's going to be magnified in, in the dating and it's going to be magnified if you get married tremendously. Because now because I'm thinking of Brene Brown, of course, we had to bring her in because she's wholeheartedness. And I broke it down to these two areas that this is, I feel like there's two areas of wholeheartedness in my mind. There's tenderness and then there's vulnerability. There is the tenderness, which is me working to be my response to somebody else's with tenderness. That means not stonewalling, judging, that kind of stuff. Can you be tender with someone when it's painful, right? And be with them and take on their realities to, to help them and assist them without losing your own. And then the other side is vulnerability. That is like me showing up and bringing my stuff to the table, even though it might hurt. I think that is the strong cultivation that needs to be practiced outside the context and inside the context, but at least be aware of, I have this tendency. It, it can vex, well, anything, any friendship, definitely romance, that if you can't come to the table and bring your true colors, or at least begin to show like, this is how I really feel because I'm afraid of being judged. This is not going to go away in romance. This is going to be double. I'm just thinking like, how can you be vulnerable with someone if you're getting more criticism back than kindness, so to speak? And so that's part of being vulnerable is there needs to be some emotional trust. I won't, that person won't hurt me with this. They won't criticize me. I won't be shamed or judged or, and so in order to bring that, in order to be able to like bring that, because it takes an act of courage, I think, to be vulnerable with one another. And, and personally, I'm not vulnerable with people who I know, very vulnerable with those people who I know already through experience are going yeah. to be critical or turn it around on me in some <laughs> sure. unhelpful way. Yeah. And so if you're that tenderness and vulnerability, it's if one's being vulnerable, then trying to meet whether you use tenderness or just trying to at least maybe, maybe the if you have a tendency towards contempt and criticism and thing and these things, then maybe the first step is how do I respond neutrally? So I'm not, and then from there, I can maybe start to add in, yeah. oh, how do I respond in, with the, is an, you know, empathic response? How do I respond in a supportive way? Can I bring humor in it? Can I show that I understand in these statements? And there's, if we look at things on a continuum, there's a lot of space for movement. And maybe the best first step is, okay, well, I'm just going to try to respond with, with, I'm going to leave this and just try to be neutral if it's too great of a jump to get all the way over here. Even that could make yeah. a difference in movement and mm. momentum. But I think it's powerful to be vulnerable. There there needs to be some trust that I won't be like hurt back. And again, if it happens occasionally, that's not, it's not like this can never happen. It's that if that happens, True. what Gottman is saying that predicts stable marriages is that there's five other positive interactions that it's like covering it or surrounding it with love. You know, if there's this one hurt, but the rest of it is all affection, friendship, love, tenderness, whatever we want to call it, that doesn't become the dominant like narrative of the exchange or even the relationship. 
That's great. It reminds me of that. I'm show you that pyramid that I created. I, I, I don't have that. I, I put it in one of the notes that I gave to you, but I call it the behavioral p- pyramid where it really is like, there's the result. It's a great way. I think to, it's helped me to reflect a little bit more of like, I have these results in my life, the things that I have, the, the, maybe the not so good things in my life. Like, where are they coming from? Why do I end up being in these situations and having these kind of results? And that comes from my actions. But of course my actions come from something else. They come from those beliefs that I have, mm-hmm. but those beliefs come from my thoughts and my thoughts come from my emotions and my emotions come from the base layer, which is the experience. And that experience is the foundation by which we live our life for better and for worse. And so when we think about, man, my relationship, it's not where I want it to be. It's not maybe the ideal. That's the result. That's the outcome. But then where did it come from? There's lots of good resources that you're saying, providing, but at the same time, there's that experience. And that experience is if I'm in a relationship experience of level of criticism, that's disproportionate to, then you're just not going to feel safe. So then the result most likely is you begin to close yourself mm-hmm. up. And that's not the right way to go. So my question to you as we begin to close this up is two things. If you have a tendency to be that person, that stonewall, that judgment, that criticism, what's one thing that somebody can do starting this week to begin to open their heart a little bit more to be able to be a little bit less stonewalling, a little bit less judgmental towards that person? And then the other question is, but if you're on the other side, And you're a victim of that. And you're the one being stonewalled, being criticized. So now you're in this vulnerable situation, a different level. What's one thing they can do to help them get a sense of creating a safe environment, which I think is the most difficult because this is where you're more the recipient of something to begin to create an environment, help create an environment to provide better trust and friendship. I want Okay. So if we start with the person who feels like I'm criticized, I just want to acknowledge there are some situations where I don't know that it would even be the best first step to try to change this. If there's like substance abuse problems or actual emotional violence or physical violence, let's, you know, I, I want to acknowledge it that there, it could be that that's the truth. This isn't a safe relationship. And then that is something that is, I would encourage someone to get some help for so that they can navigate that. So if we take out that that's not the case, then how might you, if your spouse is potentially open to it, you might say, I feel criticized. Given examples, when you say this, I messages, sharing of feelings, make a request, very basic communication. And I'd like you to be more aware of when you're criticizing me and not do that so much. And then there's this, so there's feedback, of course, and sharing. And then there's this, if I make a change, like if I even started to look at, if I was on that side of the equation, I started to look at, well, am I, where can I increase friendship? Where can I offer that? Sometimes that individual changes have an effect on bigger institutions. They have a, a can change it because when someone's meeting you differently, it does change one's behavior. So again, if it's a safe place that these other sort of more extreme things are not present where you really are unsafe, then I think it's starting with getting feedback, maybe going to counseling, getting some support, whether that's couples or individual, and also starting to go, okay, what if I respond in new ways? Often that starts to create a change. Now, don't just do it once and then go, it didn't work. This happens. It's again, little and often, it's small changes that are sustained over time 
that can have an impact. So that's what I would suggest for the person on that side of it. The person on the other side has to want the first step in change. You got to acknowledge it's a problem. So you got to recognize your own what's coming across in in how you're communicating and, and decide to work on that in order to make a change. And you can do similar things like even... You know, sometimes you can put like something little in your pocket. Maybe you have a little stone or something or, and every time you touch it, that's a reminder to say something kind to your spouse Uh, or like your child, for example, if that's what you're working on. So you can create some sort of physical reminder where, oh, every time, yeah, I have this reminder that's in my pocket and I have to put my hand and feel it. It's my reminder to say that. And so you just practice it and don't like wait to practice it in an argument. Cause like you were saying, when you're triggered, no, 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 it's way harder to access doing that and get there. But you can just say, I'm going to try shoot for five things today to say that express friendship, affection, like a positive regard for the other person. And I'm just going to practice that behavior. And that's powerful because over time, one, it will change what happens between the two of you. And two, it will create this new habit and likely crowd out the older habit of contempt and criticism and those sorts of things. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think it's just, it's all going back to discovery. I think, like you said, we started off this idea of like practicing discovery where I think where we fall prey of losing friendship is when we begin to determine who they are. And say, this is who they are to me. And it's like this sense of polarity of this is who I think they are. This is what they stand for. And, and putting these, not boundaries, but like these walls, like the stonewalling, but flipping it into the sense of discovery of like always looking to like, what's beautiful about them, what's great about them. And then not just allowing that to be your own treasure, which I think sometimes we can fall prey to. We think about it. We don't get beyond that, but then to be bold and share it with them and tell them, this is why I love you. This is why I appreciate you. This is what I see in you. And it's a small things. And I think the one thing you and I were talking about that I think would be fun. And so we'll commit to this is I'm a big journaler. I love journaling. I think it's fun. It's been really, it's helped me to get into a routine. Like I said, I think it's the small habits you were saying that build over time into something great. It's the small things in life that lead to transformation. And in my life, unless I have some system in place, I just end up not, I don't do it frequently. I do it here and there. It's like a vacation, but I'm not, it's not part of my rhythm of life. If it's not on the calendar, it doesn't get done. Mm-hmm. So having a little template and then maybe you and I coming together, create a small little template of a few questions to ask, to provoke wonder and curiosity and discovery about the person, your child, your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, or maybe to help facilitate discovering that really beautiful person in front of you to cultivate a different, more profound friendship. Cause I know some people can be in so deep. They're thinking they're listening. I can't see anything. I don't hear anything. I don't see anything. I give up, but don't give up. It's there. I and mean, there's nobody on God's green outside of the, what you were saying, sis violence, these kind of things. That's a whole different territory, but in a neutral terrain of just dysfunctional people trying to work together and build a relationship it just takes habit and sometimes asking the same question over and over and, and lean discovery, the first few days, weeks, there might be very little on that paper, but one day the font's going to be open and you're going to see things like, oh my gosh, I didn't recognize that small thing. She, every day she makes the bed. I never do it. Yeah. And I never once thanked her for it. That's, it's the little, it's a little crack that begins to form and turns into this huge beautiful crevasse of like really good, beautiful things you see in another. So you and I will commit to, so if you go to livingthereal.com slash friendship, 
you'll be able to get that little download. We'll do it soon and get a small little template going to give to you. I want to add something there because I like what you're saying. It's yeah. it's easy to notice the faults in others or what's what's wrong. And intentionally placing your attention and looking for the positives, what you value, what you appreciate, what you enjoy is 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 what I hear you talking about. And I think like this template, I would almost encourage it to be more introspective in how do I show up as a friend? How do how does yeah. that person sitting across from me, my friend, while we're eating lunch, view me? What do I think they value? And is that what I want to convey? And so it it is about one, can I appreciate the other instead of focusing on their faults? And the introspective part is what's my either intention or values around friendship? And am I showing up in the way as a friend that fits for me with all of that? That's great. This is why we, this is why we have you on. We're going to do that. It's great. So we're going to put add introspection, a little both. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to start using it as soon as it's created. So I'm excited. So go to livingthereal.com slash friendship, snag it. My last question to you, this is, we didn't talk about this, but this is like the middle ground. I'm just curious. I had Somebody come talk to me about this. And I think this is more common than the other things we talked about. And that is you're in a relationship by which it's a good relationship. You feel good, except for the husband just doesn't like to share their emotions whatsoever. They just don't. But they feel like they're in a good relationship. They wish they could have that, but they're okay letting it go because that's just how he is. Now, is that okay? And what do you do in those situations? Be like, it's a good relationship, but I wish I had that. And I've asked him a couple of times to share and he just says good or whatever. He doesn't say anything and he just allows it to be that terrain. Is that just okay? Or do we like, how do we help someone like open that door a little bit? It's a good relationship. You know, that's, I've heard that a lot. Yes. Where maybe one doesn't really talk about emotions and it tends to be associated with men more than women. And so I think there's a balancing of acceptance, like knowing who this person is and meeting them there while asking for changes if those really are what you think benefit or valuable. And so I I don't know this is an either or answer. I would say bringing some of those and not in a giving up. Acceptance isn't a giving up. Okay. It's about going, I know this, my partner loves me and accepting that this is how he engages But it's also, there are also things you can do. Again, it requires both people to want to change this that can maybe lead to more comfort. One thing we did as a family that our son, who's now 18, has always loved is at some point we just started doing our highs and lows around the dinner table. And you just say, okay, what's the best part of your day? Hi, the low. And I just did it once or a few times. And then our son just loved it. And we had to do it all the time. He still does it after vacations. What's (laughs) the high and low for you guys? Just so we all know. But it's interesting, like even that, and we're, we are all talkers in our family and we share, this is not an issue for us, but, but I learned things and I learned things I wouldn't have known if we hadn't had this because you forget it's dinner time now and that happened at 9am and I'm actually over and done with it. But when you reflect back, so I do think there are practices that maybe don't feel quite as 
maybe frightening to someone who's not used to sharing, that you can start to build a practice and a language around sharing in other ways. There's games now, questions that have question prompts that you can pull one. Oh, table topics, right? You can have that on your um, dinner table and pull one. And just maybe, especially if this is something that person wants to change and is willing to change, can join in. So I think it's a balance of accepting, bringing acceptance, and then being able to go, is this something we can look at and try to create some change in? And ideally, both people will say yes in that (laughs) or get to that and then maybe find out how to go about doing that. Yeah, I love it. Rejoice in the crack, you know? (laughs) Not the, that, not that the would be crack, quite the t-shirt. The, <laughs> <laughs> people get a lot of confused about what crack we're talking about, but rejoice in the crack. And I, this, this one thing I sent you and I'll, and I will end on this, that I, this one part, it said ego-based relationships. I love this. You must love me in the exact way I need heart centered relationships. I learned to honor your unique ways of loving me. Now, I think there's room for, there obviously room for both of these things, that there's people who have needs and you need to help fulfill those needs. And they're also looking by the unique ways by which people are loving. I, there was this one Facebook post from some girl from high school. I loved it. She said for decades and decades, she's been looking to, to, to have her husband fulfill her and all of her needs. And it wasn't until just a handful of years ago that she began to see, oh my gosh, I'm thinking of this wrongly. All the along, she, he's been loving me in these tremendous ways that I've been just not seeing. And they just didn't fit my little cliche, my little bubble of what it means to be loved. And now her heart is just blown open. So again, leaning into the discovery, finding those ways by which people really do love you. It doesn't mean that's the exclusive way, but it helps to find that little crack to open up and find the beauty in that person and then allow that to expand bigger and bigger, hopefully for a more profound and beautiful relationship. Yes. All right. Thanks, sis. Thanks for for having me on. on. I always love talking about this stuff with you. Okay. Take care. All right. Thanks for having me. I'll see you Bye. soon. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Angie Long and myself and this conversation about how we can establish deeper foundations of friendship in the context of romantic love. I know I needed this, and I'm sure at least a handful of you really needed this episode as well. And I really hope you snag this free template to be used as a way to cultivate a recurring sense of awe and wonder with the people around you that you love most dearly. Now, of course, this is excluding those difficult situations where you're involved in relationships that revolve around substance abuse and physical violence. And for that, I ask you to please seek professional help. But for the other circumstances in life by which we just have a tough time seeing the people in front of us, seeing that real person, being stuck in regret and resentment and frustration and judgment, but overcoming that and seeing the profound beauty of the person before us. I hope, I hope this helps you to have a more deeply real relationship with the people you love most. Oh, and by the way, if you could hear little rugrats in the background of the episode, I truly apologize, but that is my real life. And sometimes in the middle of a conversation, our little boys get out of their nap times and they run downstairs and we have beautiful hardwood floors and I record in the basement. So there you have it. You heard probably a number of sounds. I hope you enjoyed them and we'll see you next episode with or without the Rugrats. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Living the Real. If you want to check out more information, go to livingthereal.com and sign up for my newsletter. If you want to support this podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash LTR, as well as one-time payments at Venmo and PayPal in the show notes. See you all next episode. Take care. Bye-bye. Before you head off, I just have one small favor to ask of you. If there's anybody in your life that you can think of, two people that might really could use this Living the Real podcast, would you share it with them this week? I'd greatly appreciate it. Somebody in your life like, man, they could just use a deeper perspective, right? Maybe a calling to a bigger purpose, or maybe they just need a better plan in their life. Share with them. Give them the hope that they need to be able to get out of whatever they need to get into, to be inspired to do something great. So if you can think of two people in your life right now who could use a little bit more of a realness in their week, please share it with them. Take care. Bye-bye.